you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'm Brian. I um, go to Glen Iris GC. I've been to City on Hill for four years now and a half. Um, today we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 6:14 to chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out in their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Brian. You can hold on to that one, actually. I've got my own special Madonna mic, which is pretty cool. Hey, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Neil. I get to be one of the pastors here. Uh, and so glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. Final week at Monash. It's exciting. I've enjoyed the particularly comfy chairs, uh, the little tables. It helps colour in while you, you know, if the sermon gets a bit bored. Uh, but I'm so glad. Hey, next week we get to be back at Phoenix Park. And Lord willing, it will be warm in there, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, amen. Hey, well, while I was uh, preparing uh, for this week, I came across an article by a journalist named uh, Ben Sixsmith, uh, and he was reflecting on uh, the Christian uh, church and evangelical culture off the back of another uh, well-known celebrity pastor failure uh, that kind of made headlines around the world. And uh, this journalist, he's not a Christian, but he wasn't particularly kind of antagonistic towards uh, Christians or the church. But uh, here's what he said as he reflected uh, on kind of the, the large swaths of contemporary evangelical church culture uh, in what he likes to call with a twist of Christianity uh, trend. He says that uh, in many churches uh, that there is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, uh, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all of those things and premarital sex. And he goes on to say this, he says, I'm not religious, So it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my uh, lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And what I find particularly kind of striking about his comments is that, is that even as an unbeliever, he, he considers this lack of Christian distinctiveness among Christians is, is a bad thing. 
that, that he, even he recognises that there's something wrong if Christians don't live any different from the rest of the world. And particularly so if they're actively tr- trying to be like the rest of the world. See, there's nothing inspiring about that. There's nothing at all appealing about that. Uh, someone else framed the challenge this way. That if you were ever put on trial with the accusation of being a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict? Would there be enough evidence to convict? The church uh, that we've been looking at here in Corinth uh, has just been a, a bit of a hot mess, right? Uh, As we've heard, Corinth was this uh, just incredibly kind of pagan uh, and spiritualistic and pluralistic, immoral city. And and many of the Christians there had been saved out of that. But they're they're still trying to figure out what it means and how to live in a culture that that is constantly trying to pull them away from God and back into immorality and back into worship of false gods and, and to compromise their newfound faith. And as we see in this letter, uh, there's these false teachers that have actually come into the church, they've infiltrated the church as well. And those false teachers have begun to, to turn people against Paul and against what Paul has been teaching. And they're spreading this kind of uh, Judaistic legalism sprinkled with, uh, with pagan spirituality. Kind of a, uh, it's a religion with a, with a twist of Christianity. And so the church here is just, they're just all kinds of confused. And so there's a whole bunch of opinions about you know, how Christians should live in this culture and what they can do and what they can't do. And as we saw last week, just before uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, Paul has been uh, appealing to them and he says in, in verse 12 that you are restricted in your own affections. And he's saying to them, hey, you've, you've grown cold, your hearts have grown cold, have hardened, have hardened towards me, and therefore they've hardened towards this gospel. And so this section that we're looking at today, if you kind of read in the floor, it might kind of feel like it comes out a bit of nowhere, but, but Paul here is, is lovingly saying to them, here's why your hearts have grown cold towards the gospel. And it's because you've either missed or you've dismissed the radical distinctiveness that comes with being a follower of Jesus. And because of that, you've compromised the beauty and the power of the gospel and so your hearts have grown cold. So we're going to dive in. So if you've got your Bibles, love to keep them there in chapter 6. And we'll start by considering this call that Paul gives us to radical distinctiveness. The call to radical distinctiveness. Uh, in verse 14, Paul starts, he says, uh, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we're going to come back to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but he goes on off the back of that to, to list out uh, five striking contrasts uh, that uh, define this radical distinctiveness. So first he says there, for, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And so the first thing we see is that there's a, there's a moral or ethical distinctiveness. There's a, there's a difference between right and wrong. And so lawlessness here is not uh, kind of merely about following state or federal laws, although you, know, you should obey the law, we shouldn't break the law. But, but what he's talking about here is about the, the law of God, the law of Christ. You might be thinking, well, hang on, isn't 
you know, isn't this supposed to be all about grace? Doesn't it sound a bit kind of legalistic? But you see, time and time again, throughout the New Testament, it describes those who are uh, enemies of God, those who don't know Jesus as being lawless. But they don't want to follow what Jesus says. So even, even Jesus himself says this about uh, those people who, who think they're Christians, they might even identify themselves as Christians and yet aren't actually Christians because in Matthew 7, he says those, those hor- horrifying words that, you know, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In verse 14, he continues, he says, So what fellowship has light with darkness? And so not, is there, not only is there a, a moral distinctiveness, but there's uh, uh, about truth and deceit. So darkness is the absence of light, and light eliminates darkness. And so there's, there's no fellowship between light and darkness. They can't exist together. And so truth and falsity and lies and deceit, those things can't exist together. And so believers are to be marked by a, a, a commitment to truth and avoid all kinds of lies and deception. We're committed to truth and light. And he moves on, a third, third contrast. And, and being the middle of the, the five there, it it's also makes it central. Verse 15, says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Uh, that word there, Belial, is, an, is another word that he's using there for Satan or the devil. Well, what, what accord does Jesus have with the devil? And the word there for accord is actually the, the word that we get the word symphony from. So, you know, beautiful music. What harmony is there between Jesus and the devil? There, there is none, right? There is only complete and utter dissonance. There's, there's no co- cooperation between Jesus and the devil. And so scripture says that you're either following Christ, you're either following Jesus, or you're following the devil. In 15, he continues, he says, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? So the word portion here speaks of inheritance, about the, the, the promises of God that we have in Christ. What are some of the promises that we got? What's our portion? We have salvation, justification, adoption. We have grace. We have new life. We have eternal life. We go on and on and on about the inheritance, the portion that we have in Christ. These are all things that are distinct and belong only to believers. These are the things that make us distinct. And then he lands there, verse 16. The fifth one, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so the issue here is that of worship. Now this uh, issue of idol worship was actually a, a huge thing and false religion was clearly a massive and ongoing thing for the church here at Corinth. Because as we said, the, the, the Corinth, they're the city they're in, what they're being saved at is this hugely uh, pagan and religious, spiritualistic, uh, pluralistic culture. And it was a place where you, could, where you could worship whatever God that you liked. And so if you wanted to worship Jesus, well, then for the average person in Corinth, well, that was completely fine because you could simply just add Jesus to the pantheon of gods that people already worshipped. So it wasn't so much the, the worship of Jesus that made them distinct, but it was the exclusive worship of Jesus. 
that made them distinct. Many of the Christians there, they've been, they've been saved out of this paganism. They've been saved out of this idol worship. And they're still actually trying to figure out then what it means to live in a culture because back then there wasn't a kind of a clear line between a religious and civic life. The, the, the pagan temples, the idol temples there were, were kind of functioned more like community centres. Right, where there's a whole bunch of different uh, community things that went on. There'd be weddings and there'd be funerals or some of them acted like uh, restaurants where you could eat at or they supplied meat that had been sacrificed to the or they supplied the markets. And so it wasn't just as simple as uh, avoiding particular places or food. And this is something Paul talks about with the church at length back in 1 Corinthians. He's trying to help them how to, to navigate, to be faithful to Christ in the midst of a, of a, of a pagan and pluralistic culture where, where idol worship and false religion was just kind of part and parcel of everyday life. And there Paul says, you know, on one hand, well, there's, there's a whole bunch of freedom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, hey, you know what? We know that actually idols that are, that are made of stone and wood, well, they're actually, they're, they're nothing. Right, so if you if you buy some meat from the, the local butcher and maybe it's been uh, sacrificed to one of those idols, then it doesn't matter. You're free to eat because there's there's nothing there. You've got freedom there. But he also says the thing that should constrain our freedom is that we need to ensure that we don't give the, a fellow believer a kind of wrong idea about what's acceptable to God and what's not, in case we cause them to stumble. And so even the freedom that we have is to be constrained by our love for one another. But then it kind of gets a bit more complex because on the other hand, he says in chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians that, that yes, there's a whole lot of freedom, but also don't be naive about the dangers of participating in false worship. See, the, the freedom that we have doesn't extend to, to participating in, in worship practices because actually, yes, we know that idols are nothing, but actually behind those idols are demons. We don't want you to participate with demons. And so he's saying you, you can't participate in those things and say, well, well, it's okay because I know that idols are nothing. And actually, well, in my heart as I'm doing those things, I'm actually worshipping Jesus. No, no, he's saying you can't participate and he says that you need to flee, which means uh, run like you're being chased by a wild animal. Right? So flee for your life from idolatry. That's why here in our passage, he says, verse 16, For what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are, for you are the temple of the living God. He's saying, the spirit of the living God doesn't reside in temples or places. It actually resides in you and me, that you are the temple of God. So, so how could you possibly do anything that might cause you to participate with demons? And so Paul is drawing this just incredibly stark contrast. Like two different worlds we're seeing here, right? Like one is defined by, by righteousness by, by light and by faith and by truth and by the, the promises of God and by true worship and ultimately by Christ. And then on the other hand, the other is marked by rebellion and darkness and, and unbelief and idolatry and ultimately by Satan. 
And Paul's saying here, you either live in one or the other. You, you, you can't live in both. And, and maybe you're trying to kind of switch between both worlds and move between them, saying you can't do that. Or maybe we try and you know, diminish the differences. You know, it's a bit, bit extreme, isn't it? Right? A bit extreme. But if, but if we believe these things that Paul's been telling us to be true, if we, if we believe them to be true, then this radical distinctiveness should mark every aspect of our lives. And so from there, he, he goes on. Verses 16 to 18 says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He he draws uh, all these verses, not quoting one in particular, but he's kind of drawing these from a a number of different places in the Old Testament to kind of create this mosaic of promises and warnings. And and all of these are, are given in the context uh, of where there's warnings both against treating God's word lightly and also warning them about the dangers of, of being drawn into compromise by the surrounding culture. And, and so just like in the Old Testament, there's still this call for Christians, for the people of God to be separate. There, there should be a, a radical distinctiveness about our lives. So what does this look like for us? Well, let's consider what it means to live radically distinct lives. First, we should kind of clarify yes, you know, what, what this doesn't mean. Now, uh, this, is, this is not a call here for some kind of uh, complete and utter uh, separation or withdrawal from uh, culture and society. Here, it's, it's not a, a call to, to cut off all ties with unbelievers or cut off all kind of relationships. I mean, if we think about everything that Paul has just been saying, it's going to be hard to do what we saw last week as being ambassadors for Christ. We need to actually have good uh, and deep relationships with unbelievers if we're going to fulfill that mission that God has called us to, right? And so this is also, it's not a command as some have erroneously believed as well, to, to withdraw and start some kind of you know, monastic lifestyle, some kind of isolated community that's kind of physically and spatially shut off from the rest of the world. No, no, much of, uh, so much of what Paul has been saying to them here, even these references from the Old Testament, are actually referring to how it looks like and what it means to be faithful in the midst of a culture that is all against Christ, whatever that culture is. I mean, even Jesus, he prays in our high priestly prayer in John 17. Not that we would be taken out of this world, but that, would be, that we would know how to be faithful to him in the world. And so the separateness that he's talking about here is, is not primarily about it being like a, a physical or a spatial separateness from believers, but a, but a spiritual separateness. And so there, there seems to be a, a number of areas concern, particularly concern here for Paul. And, and one of the big ones is in the area of relationships. And so back in uh, verse 14, it's where he says, uh, to do not be yoked or unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
Now, if you've ever been to a, a community games event, you know, a primary school or perhaps a kind of a church event, uh, you'll know that uh, when they put on a, a bunch of games and races, that the, the key to winning those races and those games is not necessarily about speed, but about strategy. For example, the classic egg and spoon race. Right? That's not about speed, because if you try to go just as fast as you possibly can, then you're going you know, to lose the egg, aren't you? It's gonna, but, and I know that some of you here, you kind of have that type A, and you know, winning these kind of things is really, really important. And so you've got to have the right strategy. The other one is the, the, the classic, the three-legged race. Right? You, need, you need strategy that if you're going to win, you have to be partnered with someone else who is going to be the same kind of size and height as you, right? Because if, you know, the worst thing is, is if you're paired up with your kid, right? You get your, your leg tied to your kid who's like half your size and weight, right? What's going to happen? The best you can do is like, you can pick them up and try to run across. Because if you try to, try to run with them, what's going to happen? You're just going to hit the deck. You're going to fall over. Right? You're not going to win. Now, because we're all kind of city slickers here, this is the best example I could, could try to make in terms of what Paul is getting up here to explain this metaphor. Because, because Paul here is uh, drawing from this Old Testament command not to yoke or to harness together two different kinds of animals when you're trying to plow a field. Right? It seems kind of random, but he's saying you, you can't uh, harness together or yoke together an ox and a donkey. And, and so a yoke there, you can see there, is, a, is that bar that kind of goes between the two. And it's an apparatus that's used to join two animals together so that they could use their combined strength to achieve whatever task they were trying to do, to plough the fields. And it only works if the animals are similar. They need to be equally yoked. Okay, so you could have two donkeys or you could have two oxen, but you couldn't have an ox and a donkey because... Those animals, they're completely different sizes, different uh, weights, heights, gates. Okay? They, they move at different paces, and, and it just doesn't work if you try to join them together. That would be an unequal yoke. And so Paul, he's saying here that, that one of the ways this radical distinctiveness plays out is that there are certain partnerships and relationships that would be antithetical for Christians to enter into and to be a part of. Now, I don't think this is the, the only thing that Paul has in mind here, but, but this is uh, most often applied to the area of marriage. That, that for believers, marrying uh, unbelievers or dating unbelievers is, is out of bounds. We are only to marry in the faith. To marry an unbeliever would be to be unequally yoked. This raises probably a, a whole bunch of questions uh, and struggles for a lot of people. One of them is, you know, what if you're already married and, and you're married to an unbeliever? Well, what should you do then? If you're not to be equal, should you get divorced? Actually, Paul addresses it. He says this back in uh, 1 Corinthians as well. In chapter 7, he says, no, no, if, you're, if your husband or your wife, if, if they're not a believer, then you should remain married. But if they want to stay married to you, you should remain with them and you need to be faithful to your marriage covenant. But, but this command is actually something that's consistent throughout of all of Scripture. And it's actually something that is central to maintaining this, this radical distinctiveness that we're called to. 
Because time and time again, God's people throughout Scripture were, were constantly drawn away from faithfulness to Him because they took husbands and wives from people outside of the people of God. I don't think here uh, Paul is intending, though, to, to limit this uh, application purely to marriage. It's actually a much broader principle that we need to consider for, for all of our relationships with unbelievers. And the principle that, that Paul is, is trying to instill is this. It says, don't bind yourself into any kind of relationship or partnership or endeavour that will compromise your Christian distinctiveness that will sabotage your desire for holiness or will weaken your ability to follow Jesus. Don't, don't, don't enter and don't bind into those things. So are there those kind of things for you? What Are there relationships? Are there, there, there friendships, commitments? Things that you're, you're a part of that are actually causing you to compromise, that are, that are, are sabotaging your desire for holiness? Are they, are they weakening your, your commitment to follow Jesus? Are there the relationships or, or commitments that are, are tempting you to, to draw your heart away from worshipping God and to worshipping other things? Because this, this passage is saying, hey, because God has made you his own, because you are a, a, a new creation, then, then don't take this radical distinctiveness lightly that this should mark your life. And as you, as you seek to follow Jesus in this world, it's take seriously anything that might compromise that distinctiveness, anything that might draw you into worshipping the idols that are just embedded and entrenched in the culture that we're in. Now, uh, typically when we, we, we talk about idolatry in this kind of day and age, in the West in particular, we, we know for the most part that we're, we're not talking about uh, the physical idols of stone and wood that they had back then, but we're talking about uh, idols of the heart, right? And so if you've been uh, at Sidon Hill kind of for any length of time, you'll know that we often want to speak into these cultural idols of the day, idols like money, and success and career and relationships and, and approval, these are the, the kinds of idols that we tend to worship instead of worshipping Jesus. But even though we're, we're in just a, an incredibly uh, secular culture, there's still many uh, religious practices and spiritualities and philosophies that, that permeate the world that we're in and that are actually antithetical to the gospel. Even though many of those things are kind of being, you know, westernized uh, to appeal to our secular sensibilities. A few years ago, um, my daughter Jamie, she, she comes home from her, her primary school class uh, and she's excited about this kind of stretching and meditation thing uh, that her teacher led them through uh, as part of their class. Uh, it turns out they had a yoga session. And so we had some questions about that. And so my wife, Kirsty, she, uh, she goes to speak to the teacher about it. And the teacher tries to assure her, no, no it's, just, it's just exercise. It's, it's just stretching. There's, there's nothing religious. And she really couldn't understand why we might want to investigate actually what's, what's going on there. And so Kirsty asked, okay, well, well, what does it look like? She said, oh, well, we, we start by putting our hands together like this and, and saying namaste. And we said, well, actually, do you know what that, that means? So it's just, just a greeting. It's just like saying hello. It's like, you know, 
actually it means uh, I bow to the divine in you. Or my soul bows to your soul. And see, interesting, the word yoga uh, actually means to yoke or or union. And the the goal of yoga is to unite oneself with the the infinite Brahman or the, uh, the Hindu concept of God or the divine consciousness. And so every part of yoga is actually the various poses and the stretching and the breathing techniques and the meditation and the chants or the mantras. All those are done in order to channel spiritual energy for healing or for relaxation or whatever that might be. As we looked into it more to see what it was about, we found that many of the poses uh, they share names with uh, some of the 330 million Hindu gods uh, and that uh, many of them are, are done as poses of worship. So, for example, the, the, the sun salutation, that's a, a pretty common one, uh, is a series of poses and stretches that is designed to be an act of worship of the sun, the, the sun that's in the sky, not the son of God, right? And my daughter Jamie, she, she loves being part of, of anything and everything. Uh, so it was kind of expected her to be a little bit disappointed. But I explained to her that, you know, that, all, that although this might just kind of seem like stretching and, and exercise, well, it's, it's actually part of a, of a system of worship of other gods. And well, we're Christian. The Bible tells us that we are to only worship Jesus. And, and I know that they're the, they might not be intentionally or in their hearts trying to worship false gods or anything like that, but it's still a, a, a system of worship. And so I said to her, you know, I'm sorry, sweetie, that we don't want you to join in with that, be part of that. And she said, well, well, I only want to worship Jesus, so that's okay. And, and, I, and I love that because she was willing, so willing to, to, to give up that because she wanted to worship Jesus. Now, I realise... Uh, this kind of thing probably opens a whole bunch of can of worms for some. Uh, many Christians disagree on, on whether or not something like yoga uh, is okay. Can it be completely separated from the, the spiritual dimension? Can it be done purely as exercise? And you know, how does this play out in a whole bunch of other kind of similar areas? Unfortunately, we don't have time to really kind of dive into that. So if this is something you want to kind of explore more, I'd love to, to chat with you through it and work through some of those kind of things. But the, the, issue, the issue isn't stretching, right? Stretching's good. You should do stretching, all right? I need to do more stretching. Uh, or you shouldn't do, it's not that you shouldn't do like particular stretches uh, in any kind of setting as if they contain some kind of unavoidable intrinsic spiritual meaning. I mean, yoga doesn't have a monopoly on stretching. Right? But, but part of this radical distinctiveness that should mark Christians is wrestling through these issues in light of what, Christ, what Scripture says. And so... When Scripture tells us and warns us not to be naive with regards to issues of idolatry and and false worship that we might get drawn into that are just the kind of a normal part of our everyday culture, then then we do really well not to be naive, right? And so when Scripture says that, you know, regardless of your intent, that, you know, participating in certain things means that you're participating with demons, well, you need to run from that. And it also says, well, Actually, we have a whole lot of freedom too, right? A whole lot of freedom. 
but to ensure that you don't use that freedom to, to confuse other Christians about what is wrong and right. And, and so in all these things, we need to think wisely and biblically about the things that we participate in. Because we've been called to a, a radical distinctiveness that is to uh, impact our entire lives. Chapter 7, verse 1, as we read, it says, should be body and soul. It impacts our relationships. It impacts the things that we participate in. And so as we think about this, Paul, Paul gives us the key that we need to actually live this way. And the key is that as we're called to be radically separate from the world, we're promised a radical proximity. Radical proximity, which is the radically present God. Passage, uh, Paul gives us a bunch of these incredible promises. So let's look at them again in verse 16. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. These promises are promises that we find throughout the entire Old Testament. And what Paul is saying here is that all these promises are now already true for you in Jesus. Right? That, that because of his life and his death and his resurrection for you in your place, that, that if you are in Christ, then you already are the temple of God. That, that God already dwells in you. That God walks with you. That he has called you out. That you have been made his son or his daughter. That he is your father. And, and this is what actually makes us radically distinct. That in a, in a godless world, you actually have the very presence of the true and living God. That in a world where you don't belong, you belong to the God of the universe. And as he keeps going, it's kind of interesting then how, how Paul lands this section in the start of chapter 7, verse 1. He says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What does it mean here by the fear of God? Because I mean, surely we're not, we're not meant to live uh, in fear, right? I mean, that kind of just sounds miserable and horrible, right? I mean, when we think about fear, it often typically only has just kind of negative connotations. But in, in Scripture, the, the fear of God actually has incredibly positive connotations. See, it's not that the God is the most scary thing that exists and therefore I've got to live my life just desperately trying to avoid his judgment or his disapproval. No, no it's actually that the God is the most glorious, the, 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 the weightiest, the most perfect and pure and good and beautiful and true thing that there is. And, and I need to live my life, not, not just simply trying to avoid judgment or disapproval, but in complete awe of him. Yeah, I need to seek to align myself and conform to him. And it's, and it's dangerous if I forget that. 
That's what the fear of God is. And that's why throughout the entire Bible, the, the fear of the Lord is described in such positive terms. It's described as the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the, the fountain of life. It's the treasure of your soul. It's the, the source of true confidence. The, the fear of God is the, the source of delight, of true satisfaction. You know, all things that the world is trying to sell us counterfeit versions of, but things that, that would only make sense if the fear of God was not actually about uh, just fear of his disapproval or his judgment. See, the way that we live in this world, but separate from it, it is living in the light of the fact that God is so much bigger, so much better than anything else this world has to offer. He's so much bigger and better than, than our relationships, so much bigger than those things that we can participate in, so much bigger and better than anything this world has. So what if, what if you knew this kind of fear, the, the, the fear of God? Wouldn't that kind of fear just drain the power out of all the other kinds of fears that we typically have? The, the, the fears that, that drive us to compromise. The, the fear of missing out. Or, or the, the fear of loneliness. The, the, the fear of failure or rejection. The, the fear of what other people think. Wouldn't, wouldn't this fear of God just give you just a radical and joyful distinctiveness? See, friends, if you, if you know the fear of God, it will change everything about your life. And if you find in your, your heart that, that you too have been, been growing cold towards Jesus, that if your, your heart has been hardening towards Him and you're being, you're being temper, tempted to, to compromise, then this invitation is here for you now. The invitation to, to turn away from from all those other fears that, that cause us to compromise and to turn to this fear, the, the fear of God who is bigger and better and more beautiful than anything else. It's the call to, to turn and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, stand in awe of the fact that that you have called us to yourself. There's nothing we've done. There's nothing we deserve. That it's purely by your grace that you've made us alive in Jesus. That you dwell with us. You are in us. That you have adopted us as your own. You have made us sons and daughters. And you are our Father and you are our God. And that because of that, we've been so radically set apart. That every part of our lives body and soul is for you. So Lord, I pray that you just help us to know clearly what, what this should look like as we seek to live uh, in a world that doesn't know you and is constantly seeking to draw us away. Well, if there's relationships or, or, or commitments, things that we're participating in that are just antithetical to your word, that are antithetical to your gospel, that are causing us to compromise, that are causing us to draw our hearts away from you, 
We may return from our fears and turn to you. That we might see just how much better you are. Lord, that we might be just so in awe of your beauty and your glory that we wouldn't hesitate to turn from those things. We wouldn't hesitate to, to make changes where we need to make changes, to turn to you in faith and trust. Lord, you are so full of grace and mercy. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.